The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. The scripture reading for this morning is from Philippians 1, 12 through 20. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and that I re- and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. You may be seated. And if you're in kindergarten through fifth grade and you want to go to children's church, please join Aaron over there by the kids zone. Every week. I even practice taking it off this time and it just doesn't matter. There we go. Good morning. If this is your first time here, my name is Jared Huffman. I'm on staff here at Restoration Southside. We're delighted that you would come. I know it's a weird time in life. Um, I was given a gift at the 9 a.m. service. One of the fun things that has been about the 9 a.m. service, the drive up, is, is that people honk. It's like the new amen. And they would honk, and I couldn't do anything back. And so this morning, I was given a cowbell. Restoration Southside Cowbell. So uh, it's probably the most meaningful gift I've ever received. Uh, But you're going to hear this a lot um, in the coming years. So I just wanted to share that with y'all. If you want to keep your phones up in front of you, uh, we're going to continue in that order of worship in Philippians 12 through 20. I'm going to be making reference through it throughout. Um, And if you get bored, you can just click onto another website and act like you're following along. So That'll work just fine. For those of you who this is your first week, we're starting a series in Philippians. We started last week and now pressing forward. Philippians is an interesting story because it's about a group of people receiving a letter from the Apostle Paul. They've been worried about Paul, and so they sent Epaphroditus with a gift to take care of Paul because Paul was in prison in a different city. And they don't hear anything back, and Epaphroditus doesn't come back. And then they hear rumors, and then finally this letter arrives, and Paul's going to make an account of where he is and where Epaphroditus is. But essentially what Paul is going to say is, uh, I am in jail. I have been suffering for the sake of the kingdom. Now I want you to think through this for just one second. If you're the Philippian church, this new organization and you've been excited to see that Paul is preaching all over the world, that he started your church, but he's moved on to other places, and now he's preaching, and the kingdom will expand, and the gospel will go forth. The worst news that you could possibly get back is from the founder saying, I'm in prison. 
Meaning your first instinct would be to think, well, we all started this for nothing. The main guy who's going to spread it is now in prison. And Paul is going to flip that on its head. So would you pray with me? And I'll ask God to bless our study of his world, of his word this morning. Let's pray. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? I thank you and I praise you for your word and your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would make both powerfully active in us this morning. For those who can barely lift their head from suffering, would you encourage them? For those who feel lost in their addiction, as if they cannot get free, would you help set them free? Father, we didn't come here to hear some nice music and some nice words. We came here to be transformed. And we ask expectantly that that would happen. Would you work in us this morning? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Some of you may have heard the story or may have even seen the footage, but about five and a half years ago, February 2015, there's this shocking five-minute video. It was on YouTube for a while. where They showed 21 men in orange jumpsuits being led out onto the beach. As you start to realize what's happening, it's 21 Christians whose jobs were construction workers. They're in orange jumpsuits because they've been kidnapped by terrorists, and they're being taken out to where they will be beheaded. And a five-minute video shows 21 Egyptian Christians being beheaded. You could react one of two ways to this. You could think, this is just the end. This is so horrible. The testimony of these Christians, it's over now. They can't continue to tell others. They can't continue to uh, share with the brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in their world, they can't continue to press forward with the gospel. These 21 martyrs' testimony is silenced. The other way that you can look at it is, across the world, five and a half years later, we are still motivated by their story. Suffering did not only not stop them, but it in fact caused their testimony to spread like wildfire. And that's what's happening with Paul. You would think that now the leader of Christianity, the one who's planting all these churches, they've got him bound by two guards. The chains are about 18 inches long, and he spends his days and nights like that. They got the guy who's spreading the gospel. They would think that obviously now this kind of suffering, this sort of obstacle, ends Christianity. Instead, what Paul says is, I want you to know how it advanced. And the reason that I tell you this about the martyrs who weren't silenced, and in fact the word spread about Paul, who wasn't silenced, and in fact word spread, is that the things in your life that you think are your biggest wounds, your biggest burdens, even your biggest shames, those things God uses to advance his kingdom rather than to stop his kingdom. God advances his kingdom through persecution and suffering and setbacks. Persecution and suffering and setbacks. What are the setbacks in your life 
that you are convinced has stopped God working through you. Well, let's look first at the setbacks, that God advances his kingdom through the setbacks. This is verse 12 through 14. Please follow along with me. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You see, Paul is telling them, they've been worried about him, but Paul is telling them that not only can the guards not stop him, and prison can't stop him, not even death, as he'll mention, that can't stop the gospel from going forward. And not just that the gospel goes forward in spite of suffering, what Paul is actually telling them is when we suffer, God will work through the suffering, not just in spite of it, through the suffering to bring his kingdom to bear. We see this first with those that don't believe. It's verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. What he's saying is that you can chain me up, but you're not going to stop what the King Jesus will do. Paul will later say in 2 Timothy 2, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point, listen to this, of being chained like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. What Paul is saying is that you can take the you can take away my freedom, you can take away my ability to travel, you can take away my dignity, but you cannot stop God's word from spreading. When he says the whole imperial guard, that would have been like 9,000 well-trained, well-paid soldiers. And probably not all of them would have been with Paul, but they would have been rotating through 24 hours or so at a time. He would have been chained between two of them, and these guys would have watched Paul. Now think about this. You get assigned to go in and watch Paul, and you go in there, and you get chained to him as he's sitting there. And the way that Paul prays and the way that Paul talks to you and the way that Paul asks about you, the people that come and listen to Paul, and you just have to watch this nonstop, these Roman imperial guards, and word began to spread. They would go home and say, you can't believe this guy. Everything is going against him. He's in prison when he wants to be sharing things all over the world. Everything is going against this guy. He can't even be around family and friends. Instead, he's chained to two professional soldiers, and he's full of so much joy. You see, it's his joy that was testimony to these soldiers. They weren't as happy with their lives, and they weren't in prison. And here Paul is encouraging them by his lifestyle that the word began to spread. It's happened throughout the whole imperial guard. You see, Paul could have thought, I used to persecute Christians. And that is humiliating, and it's awful, and I would kill Christians, so God can't use me anymore. My shame, I can't move forward because God couldn't use me through this. Or Paul could have thought, I'm in chains now. I'm in trouble, and so God can't use me. What I'm asking you is, what in your life causes you to conclude that God can't use you anymore? What are the setbacks or the shames or the sufferings that cause you to believe that God can't use you anymore? 
Some might say, oh, I've been divorced. That's such a shame on me, such a shame on being a Christian. I, God couldn't possibly use me anymore. Or some of you may think, I've been an addict. I have done things over and over again that I was not supposed to do. God couldn't possibly use me anymore. Or, ah, uh, I've had an affair. God can't use me anymore. It's too embarrassing. Or I've embarrassed myself publicly. I, God can't use me anymore. Or oh, I'm single. And that's not everyone else's story. And so God can't possibly use me. You see, whether it's a setback or whether it's shame from a sin, it's tempting for us to think God doesn't use us anymore. God stops there. But Paul, who was killing Christians, he knows God will use him anyway. Paul, who was chained to prisoners, knows God will use him anyway. And it's tempting to think that this is kind of a new, a new twist on the Bible. That God works through suffering. But really, it's what Scripture's all about. Do you remember Joseph? Joseph from Genesis, he's kidnapped. And you'd think, well, there goes the end of Israel. But instead, his kidnapping leads to the freedom of God's people as he becomes the most powerful man in Egypt. Or Moses. Moses, remember what Moses says why he can't go talk to Pharaoh? Because he's got a speech impediment. The speech impediment God uses as the mouthpiece for those who will set God's people free. Now how about David? David, a man after God's own heart. But what we actually remember about David is that David sinned, and when kings go off to war, he was chilling at home on his rooftop. And he sees this woman, and he takes her for his own has her husband killed, tries to cover it up, and tries to lie about the most embarrassing moment of David's whole life and kingdom, and yet that is what God has worked through to teach us about repentance. This thing that's sort of an ugly mark on the history of the church is actually a beautiful channel in which we can learn. And that's what Paul is saying. The things that you think would stop God's work are actually the most powerful channels of God's grace to other people. When you don't understand what God is doing, that doesn't mean He isn't working. And in fact, when you don't understand what God is doing, He may be doing His most dramatic, expansive, redemptive work. And if you want to check that, imagine how quiet it was in the room where the disciples were locked after they had just killed Jesus. The Jewish leaders are like, yes, finally, Pontius Pilate's like, not my problem, but at least things are quiet. And the disciples are thinking, this guy was going to bring the kingdom to bear for all of us. This guy was going to change everything. And now he's dead. He's dead and we're on the run. It's so bad, it can't possibly be redeemed. And yet through Jesus being killed on the cross, it's actually the biggest channel of grace to you and me. What are the wounds that you bear that need to be used to channel grace to others. And remember, it's not far out, way out there. It's to the people who are 18 inches from you. Those are the people who will hear your story. Those will be the people who listen to the way that you talk to them, to the way that you pray. How do you need to be of use to God through shame or suffering in your story like Paul is? Paul will later say this, we rejoice in our afflictions 
Because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. It's one of the reasons why we ask you to come to church, either in the car or in person or home online. It's one of the reasons that we want to gather us together. It's because when we hear of others' afflictions and the way that they persevere and the way that they keep putting one foot in front of the other, even when they're discouraged and they're shamed and they're humiliated that they're going to keep walking, is that somebody else in the church might be ready to give up. Might be ready to think, my story is too ugly, my suffering is too much, my sin is too deep. I want to give up. But when you're at church, either digitally or in person, and when you're gathering together with these people and you start to realize that that person's going through a lot and they're still here anyway. Your little faithfulness with your little story then is magnified. It's channeled to us into more faithfulness into the larger story. I once went to an infertility support group as sort of the the pastor on site. And this one man shared about how he and his wife had had multiple miscarriages over and over again, and he's weeping, and everyone in the room is weeping. And I thought, isn't this just like God? To use what is the most excruciating thing of shame and, and suffering that this man has experienced, and he's sitting there, and he's ministering to other people who are going through the same thing. Or a man who went through a brutal divorce, now leading others in divorce care, helping them heal and be encouraged after the the wounds that they bear, the shame that they feel. One of my dear friends who had a serious drug problem, so much that he was homeless, and now he spends his Saturday mornings ministering to homeless people. Don't you see? It's where you hurt the most, where you're most shamed. That's where God will minister to others through you. We would like if he would minister to others through our strengths, through our charisma, through our giftedness. But then we'd think it was about us. That's why Paul will later say, when I am weak, then I am strong. Who do you need to share your wounds with, your shame with, so that God will minister through you? Not only is the gospel being shared with these soldiers and making its way all the way through Rome, it's also encouraging the believers. In verse 14 it says this, Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What he's saying is is essentially that the other Christians who were afraid see Paul in prison, and instead of them thinking, oh man, i got to stop doing this, I'm going to go to prison too, they instead see his testimony and they say, he's still moving forward, we should move forward too. So God advances his kingdom through the parts of shame and suffering in your story and in Paul's, and actually uses those things to share God's word and his son. And then he also advances his kingdom through the faithful proclamation of the word. Look with me in verse 15 through 18. So he does it through suffering, in and through sore, shameful, suffering spots and ministers to others. But he also does it through the faithful proclamation of his word. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. 
The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He, re he advances his kingdom through the faithful proclamation of the word. What he's saying is that people are going and telling others about Jesus, and the kingdom is advancing. He mentions the gospel over and over again in this passage, and mentions Christ, mentions speaking the word. What he's saying is that we actually have to talk and engage with those who don't yet know, and we need to do so humbly. And then he shows us how humbly. Paul mentions those who are preaching with shady motives. It's really important for you all to understand something about this. This is not the same thing as them preaching a false gospel. We know from Galatians and in other passages that when someone stands up and preaches a false gospel, Paul says all kinds of things about them, like let him be accursed, let him be emasculated, let him... He, he says, no, do not change one word of this. So we know that he can't be talking about a false gospel. What he's talking about is bad motives. It's in essence this, that there are people who have been swept up by the gospel and who are really being encouraged and motivated, and then they see Paul get caught, and then Paul goes to prison, and now Paul's kind of trapped there. And so instead, they're going to preach the gospel. They're going to become the new centerpiece. They're going to become the new Paul. And they're sort of preaching Christ, but they're doing it out of a love of self instead of a love of Jesus. One of the commentators says, these guys aren't anti-Jesus, they're anti-Paul. And you know what Paul says? I don't care. I don't care that they're preaching from false motives. They're preaching Christ. Paul isn't worried about the credit. The first year in seminary, you take introduction to homiletics, which is this opportunity for you to be in a classroom worth of people, about 80 people, and you have to preach in front of those people, and you have a notebook in the first year, you're all kind of sizing each other up, wondering who's good, who's going to be the best, who's just okay. And when that person preaches, you try and think of everything they did wrong and you write it down on a piece of paper. All the missed applications, all the misspoken words, all of the grammar, you try and catch it all and then you hand it to this person with a smug smile on your face as you're walking out and go, hey, you did great. And then by year three, when you have walked through pain and suffering with people, when you have seen that God has used seminary not just as a time to test them intellectually, but to test their faith, to break them down, to crush them so that they're not clinging to anything else but Jesus. And then you go to your last preaching class, and instead of sizing each other up, you're just glad you're all still there together. And when you preach, instead of getting a long page of all your mistakes, you just have somebody come up to you afterwards and hug you and say, I'd follow you. I will follow you. Because the more you've been near Jesus, the more you have followed Jesus, the less it is about you. The more it is about Christ. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I don't care if others get the credit so long as Jesus gets made big. This should make us incredibly for other Christians. This should make us incredibly for people in the city. We don't care if we get the credit. As long as people know Jesus. Paul says, what does it matter? The important thing is that in and every way, from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So God uses places of shame and places of suffering in your life, in your story, 
to advance the gospel, not places of your strength. When I am weak, then I am strong. And not only that, as you live a life following Jesus, you caring about the credit will become less and less and less. Your protection of your reputation will be less and less. Your uh, ability to get offended will shrink and shrink. It's something we need to know as Christians during a season of tension in our world. One commentator said, we should be the least offensive and least offendable people in history. Lastly, God advances his kingdom through life and through death. Paul's saying not only can he use sin and suffering and shame to advance his kingdom, and not only will he do so when people are acting rightly or they're acting incorrectly, but he can advance his kingdom through life or through death. Paul says this, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed at all but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. What he's saying is that I want to make Jesus large to other people, and if I have to die to do that, or if I have to go on living, either way, I want to make Jesus large to other people. Is there anyone in your life that you're making Jesus look large whether you're suffering or your shame, whether doing it perfectly or imperfectly, which is how we always do it imperfectly, how are you making Jesus look large to other people? One of my mentors was in a season of depression and discouragement so much that he could barely continue pastoring. And he said someone from far away, long ago in his past, had heard of his depression in a different city my friend said as he was preaching his sermon, he noticed the man who had come to visit him from another city watching him, watching him preach discouraged. And as he went to the back to greet people on the way out, as pastors often do, the man finally made his way to the discouraged pastor and he grabbed him by the shoulders and he said, Jesus is enough for you. And he walked to his car and he got back in and he drove back to his city. This idea that you have the ability to speak into the sore places of others, to speak into the shamed places of others, and say, Jesus is enough for you. And that you'll be freeing them to turn and do that for others. That whether through your life or through your death, through your victories or through your losses, Christ is preached and His kingdom advances. We'll close here. Famously, a pastor, Wang, from China had gotten arrested a couple of years ago. Dozens of church leaders as part of an ongoing crackdown in China against all unauthorized religious groups. So this pastor, he's detained, he's arrested with others from his church, and he said this. He wrote a letter for all to see. If I am detained for a long period, a short period of time, to help those in power reduce their fear of my faith in my Savior, I'm happy to help them in this way. He said, I long for God to use me to tell those who let me lose my personal freedom in a way that loses my personal freedom. And then he said this, 
I made my wife scatter. And that made me lose my name and my family and my reputation. These powers that be can ruin my name and my reputation. However, they cannot change my faith, make me change my life. They cannot raise me from the dead. No one in the world can do that except for Jesus. What he's saying here is that no one can take anything from you that you'll miss, that you'll regret when you follow Jesus. When you are staring down your life in glory and you look back at the very things that you thought would bring you the most shame, the most pain, and you see how God has used them to advance his kingdom, you will actually thank God in heaven for things that you are praying away right now. What are the things in your life that instead of hiding them, you need to put them on full display so that Jesus can be made big for other people? Let's pray. Jesus, we would rather um, take our shames and our sufferings and hide them away, but we see that when we are weak, then we are strong. We see that when Paul puts it front and center that he used to persecute the church, puts it front and center that he's hurting, that you use his life to give testimony to Jesus. Would you help us in this room be a people that don't hide our wounds, don't hide our shames, don't hide our sufferings, but instead put them on full display so that Jesus can be made large to others. It's in the matchless name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.